This week's podcast is coming a day late again. I had planned about what I was going to talk about, and then on Thursday, I got a message from three different people telling me a vote that's happening on Monday in Toronto. Once I looked into the bill being voted on, I knew I had to drop everything and talk about just that. Look, lots of things have happened this week that I was planning on talking about. For one thing, Trudeau in blackface. Hilarious. So we all know Trudeau isn't a racist. We know that. Let's not be gross and say he's racist. We know he's not. But how fun is it to watch the man who claims to be the wokest world leader ever try to explain why he is apparently obsessed with blackface in high school and college and in his early career? It's fun. I'm having fun with it. He's not a racist, though. But once I got a message about this vote, I dropped everything and I'm going to tackle, wait for it, vaccines. Wish me luck. Edward Jenner grew up in the end of the 1700s. He lived in a time when smallpox outbreaks were killing people and especially children. Those who were not killed were often left blind or with other life-altering side effects. 30% of the people with smallpox died and most of those were children. It was the fear of moms and dads around the world. And around the world for centuries, people tried to find ways to protect their children from this horrible disease. In China, in 1567, people took scabs from smallpox vaccine. In China, in 1567, people took scabs from smallpox victims and blew it up the nose of healthy children in a way to give the children a little bit of the disease when they were healthy and able to fight the disease. In most of the cases, the people would only be sick for a few days and they would recover without any side effects. This was, of course, a huge risk. I mean, you could take your child that is healthy and purposely make them sick in hopes they would not get more sick later in life. It was risky. Other countries started doing the same thing, except they would scratch the skin of healthy children and put a smallpox scab into the cut and then bandage it up. This treatment spread all around the Middle East. In 1721, Lady Mary Montagu, the British ambassador wife to Constantinople, used it on her son. It was effective, and when she returned to Britain, she wanted Britain to use the same thing on the children there. They decided to try it first on prisoners. A year later, in 1722, Princess Caroline used the treatment on her own children. This made others think it was a good idea, and soon lots of parents were using this treatment. In 1721, the same year Lady Montagu returned to Britain, in the United States, people noticed that slaves were not getting sick with smallpox when outbreaks came into the town. They found out that many of these slaves had used the treatments when they were in Africa, or they had used the treatments with their children here in the United States, the treatments they had brought with them from Africa. So some people began using this treatment. 
Then in 1758, the preacher Jonathan Edwards dies from smallpox. This was in the midst of a revival that was going through the United States. People were in shock and moms were freaking out about their healthy children that they would die. So moms started to have smallpox parties. Healthy children would come to the parties. Women who were trained in the procedure would cut the children, put smallpox into the cut, bandage the cup up, and the children would all play together. Within a few days, all the kids were sick and in bed. However, for most of the children, they would recover in a few days with no side effects. They would then have a lifetime resistance to smallpox. But not all the kids had the same effect. Some ended up with very bad side effects and some died. For moms, it was a risk they decided they were willing to take. This is the world Edward Jenner was born into. Edward Jenner was a very smart kid, and by the age of 13, he was already working with doctors as an apprentice. He noticed as a child that farmers who got cowpox didn't ever get smallpox. When an outbreak came through his town, cow farmers and milkmaids never got smallpox. One day, a girl named Sarah Nelms, a milkmaid, came to the clinic and she had cowpox. Edward Jenner decided to give her eight-year-old son cowpox. He was using the mother's son as an experiment. Two months later, he had the eight-year-old boy return and he gave the child smallpox. Nothing happened. He did it again a few months later and once again, the boy was fine. Edward Jenner had started the process of creating a vaccine for smallpox. He had done it using a child and the mom didn't know what was happening. In 1798 in Trinity, Newfoundland, the first ever vaccine for smallpox was given. By 1804, missionaries started to bring the vaccine around the world. They went to Spain, the Philippines, and China. The vaccine was working, and around the world, less and less kids were dying. Then, in 1853, England passed the Vaccination Act. They made it law that every single parent had to give their child the vaccine. That did not go over well with the people in England. It was one thing to have a vaccine, but something else to be forced by law to have something injected into their children. In 1907, the law was changed to allow people to ask to be exempted from the vaccine. But a year later, in 1908, Massachusetts made it law that every single person had to get the vaccine. Once again, this is when the problem arose, and the debate lasted for decades. By 1940, Arizona, Utah, and North Dakota had all passed laws that vaccines would never be mandatory by law. However, 35 other states had by this time made it law that you had to be vaccinated. Over the years, the vaccine was upgraded. Sidney Coatman in 1899, Leslie Collier in 1940s, and Benjamin in 1960s. In 1967, the World Health Organization made it a goal to completely eradicate smallpox from planet Earth. In 1977, the year I was born, in Somalia, the final case of smallpox was seen. By 1980, the World Health Organization said smallpox was officially eradicated. 
While smallpox was being eradicated, another disease was being attacked by people who were creating immunizations. We have to go back a few decades to 1921. In New Brunswick, Canada, an American family was on vacation. Frank had his wife and his kids with him staying in their summer home. He was a lawyer and had political ambitions. When he got the flu, he spent the first few days in bed and he thought that would fix him. But one day he woke up unable to move his legs. They called a doctor who said it was simply a bad case of the flu. However, the pain became so severe that his wife could not even open a window because if the wind hit Frank, he would scream out in pain. An American doctor came to visit him and he was diagnosed with polio. Normally a disease that hits children, seeing an adult from a wealthy family with this disease sent shockwaves through the community. Frank did recover, but he would spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. When Frank returned to the States to work as a lawyer, he soon found out how hard it was to navigate the courts in a wheelchair. He eventually had to abandon his law career and focus completely on his political goals. In the meantime, in 1935, a doctor named John Kamer invented a vaccine for polio. Parents were excited to give it to their children and to make sure they never got this terrible disease. However, some of the kids who got the vaccine died just a few days after receiving it. That made a doctor named Maurice Brody come forward. He also had created a vaccine for polio. However, after receiving his vaccine, children soon contracted polio and it left children unable to walk or dead. Imagine you're standing next to a graveside while a small coffin holding a child is lowered into the ground. Her parents are standing next to the graveside. You know they blame themselves. They took their healthy child to this doctor, allowing him to inject poison into their healthy child. But you know everyone in town doesn't blame the parents. They blame the doctors. Those doctors are murderers and you want them charged with murder. Dr. Calmer and Dr. Brody were not charged with murder, but everyone thought of them as murderers. They were disgraced, and the scientific community put a stop on the polio vaccine. It was simply too risky. Meanwhile, Frank had continued his political goals and had become the President of the United States two years earlier in 1933. Franklin D. Roosevelt made it his goal to find a cure and a vaccine for polio. It was hard because after the last disaster, no doctors wanted to even look at it. He knew one thing he needed was money, so he got his friend Basil O'Connor to come along and help him raise money. They started with holding large fundraisers, but soon his political opponents accused him of raising funds for his election, so they came up with a new idea. They asked regular people to send in all their dimes to help the scientists find a cure for polio. They called it the March for Dimes, and it worked. Moms and dads and little kids all sent in their dimes, and the dimes added up quickly. The money went towards a new lab for a doctor named Jonah Salk. He was young and willing to work to find a cure. Then, in June of 1944, in Hickory, North Carolina, a huge outbreak of polio crippled the town. All the libraries, the public pools, movie theaters were all closed down, and the hospitals ran out of room. Basil O'Connor, the man that Franklin D. Roosevelt had, had set up to raise money, went to Hickory, North Carolina and used the money from the March of Dimes to build a brand new hospital. All the men in the town showed up to help, 
And in just three days, they built an entire hospital just for polio cases. Basil O'Connor brought in a photographer to take pictures of the children. These are the pictures we see today when we look back at the horrors of the disease. What you might not know is that two-thirds of the children made a full recovery with no side effects. Pictures of these happy children were taken and printed next to the pictures of the children when they were still in the hospital. The pictures were sent out with a caption, Look what your dimes did. This made the money come pouring in. Mom started a campaign going door to door, raising money for the March of Dimes. Then, at a summer camp, there was another outbreak. Fifty children at the camp suddenly got polio. The moms and dads of America were in a panic. A cure was needed and a vaccine was needed. They were ready to try again. Now they needed a vaccine. But in 1945, Franklin D. Roosevelt died. It was now up to his friend, Basil O'Connor, to continue the work of raising awareness and money for a vaccine. Five years later, in 1950, at John Hopkins University, a female scientist named Isabella Morgan tested a vaccine on a monkey named Bozo, and it worked with no side effects. The scientists were thrilled and they wanted to use it on children. Isabella refused. The idea of taking a healthy child and injecting it with something that might kill that child was not a risk worth it for Isabella. She could not handle the idea of her vaccine being used to end up hurting a child. In the end, Isabella left medicine to stay home and raise her own children. But one year later, in 1951, at the polio conference, it was announced they had a vaccine and they thought it could be used on children. One doctor stood against them, Albert Sabin. He was also working on a vaccine and he thought they should not be rushing the vaccine. The risks were too high. The fight was on. Albert Sabin, who wanted them to wait. Jonah Salk, who was ready to give vaccine to children now. So why was Albert Sabin telling them to wait? Was it because it was too risky or because his vaccine wasn't ready yet? Then Basil O'Connor, the man helping Franklin D. Roosevelt raise the money for the cure, the man behind the March of Dimes, is hit with bad news. His adult daughter has polio. Jonah Salk promises the father and the daughter. He has the vaccine. He can save others from this terrible disease. Every year across the United States, around 25,000 children were hit with polio, while many made a full recovery with no side effects. Those left in wheelchairs or with limbs that were paralyzed were in every town. And there was also the children who never made it. Some children had lungs that stopped working and they had to spend the rest of their lives in iron lungs. But in 1952, one year after the conference where Albert Sabin fought against Jonas Salk's idea of human testing, the outbreak was worse than anyone had ever seen before. Instead of 25,000 children who had polio, 58,000 children were sick and over 3,000 died. Moms went into a complete panic. They wanted their children immunized and they wanted it now. They didn't care about the risk. The risk of not being immunized was far worse. Jonah Salk began human testing without letting the polio community know. He started with children who already had the virus, instead of starting with healthy children. When he checked back in, they were all doing well and he believed the vaccine was safe. But giving it to a child who already has polio is one thing. 
giving it to a healthy child is another. Jonah Salk visited the Polk School for the Retarded in a dirty boarding school where children who were sent to functioned at a lower level. In the 1950s, these children were seen as less than human, and Salk used them as his test subjects. Thankfully, none of them got polio, and it appeared this time the vaccine worked. When the polio community got together, Jonah Salk tells them he has started human testing. They were very concerned. Dr. Albert Sabin is the most angry. He believes in something called informed consent. That means the patient must be able to consent to the risk, and they must know the risk. He believes Salk didn't tell the patients the risk, and he believes those at the school for the retarded were not able to give consent. Jonah Salk says that Dr. Albert Sabin is simply jealous and angry his vaccine wasn't finished first. In 1954, Jonah Salk begins giving his vaccine to families, but the scientific community makes him give half of the kids a fake vaccine and half of the kids a real vaccine. The patients and their parents are not told about this. The doctors don't even know which ones have the real vaccine, which ones have the fake one. They call this a double-blind trial. Some doctors have a problem with this. This means that some families will be living under the false hope that their children will not get polio. They will not know their child is at the same risk he was before the vaccine. The tests go smoothly and soon newspapers and magazines are shouting, the polio vaccine is ready. Moms and dads are ready to bring their child to get the needle. Then, a man named Walker gets in front of a microphone and begins to speak. Walker has a radio show. Mostly he talks about Hollywood gossip. But today, something else. He's been handed some secret papers. It says the government is planning on giving 1 million children the polio vaccine. But according to this paper he received, some of the monkeys who were tested with the vaccine died. Across the nations, moms are turning into the radio station to hear the newest Hollywood gossip. But this, this is way bigger. They're going to inject 1 million of our children with something that killed monkeys? Moms refuse to bring their children to get vaccinated. So the children are not vaccinated. Then another outbreak and more children die. Jonah Salk goes on TV. He explains the file Walker has is real, and it is true, monkeys had died, but it's an old file. That was from a test that when they were just producing the vaccine. The vaccine they're using now had not killed any monkeys. The problem is everything Walker said was correct and accurate except for the ending, when he said the vaccine we have now is not safe. April 26, 1954, Randy stands in line at his school for his vaccine. He's the first boy to receive it, and every child in his school gets it that day. A few days pass, and all the children are fine. Sulk is a national hero. Movie studios start writing scripts for his life story. He wins medals and awards. Schools make giant posters saying, we love Jonah Sulk. Newsweek has a cover with Sulk as the hero of the country. Then a little girl named Susan Pierce gets sick. Her school got the vaccine just two days earlier, and she was one of the children in the first grade that got the needle. Now she can't move her arm at all, and she has a high fever. The next day, she's dead. She isn't the only one. Children from all across the nation died just days after getting the vaccine. In the labs, the scientists debate. Do they stop the vaccine until they find out the problem? They debate that. They believe if they stop the vaccine until they find the problem, 
they will have to explain why they are stopping the vaccine. And if the moms find out why they're stopping the vaccine, they won't let their children get the vaccine until they fix the problem. They don't want the moms to panic. So they don't stop the vaccine and more children get sick and more children die. Finally, they trace the deaths back to the vaccines coming from just one lab, the Cutter Labs. While they're trying to find out what Cutter Labs is doing wrong, the press puts out a story of the children across the United States that have died. Most were thinking it was just a rare case of one child in their school, but soon they learn that lots of schools all across America have children who have died. The vaccine is finally paused. During this whole thing, Albert Sabin has still been working on his vaccine. Soon Salk says he's solved the problem at the Cutter Labs and the vaccine is now good to go. It's renewed, but now there's a cloud over it. And Albert Sabin tells everyone, do not trust the Salk vaccine. It's not safe. In the end, 79 healthy children became sick with, from the vaccine. Those 79 children passed polio on to 105 family members who passed it on to 200 community people. Moms and dads just won't allow their children to be vaccinated. So the vaccine is out there ready to be used, but most of the population is refusing to use it. Then Boston and Chicago are hit with a terrible polio epidemic, one of the worst ones in history. Pictures of children in bed and iron lungs are all over the papers and families are torn. They don't want the risk of their children getting the disease, but they also don't want the risk of their children getting sick from the vaccine. In the end, most parents agree to take the risk and have their children vaccinated. This whole time, Albert Sabin is still working on his vaccine. This whole time, Albert Sabin has still been working on his vaccine. He doesn't come up with a needle. His is in a sugar candy or a mouth drop. Sabin is contacted by Russia. They also have a polio problem and they want to use Sabin's vaccine. It hasn't had any large human testings before, but Russia really wants to use it, mostly because Sabin is actually Russian. June in 1956, Russia forces 10 million children to get the Sabin vaccine. This is not a choice. Bring your child to the center or the police will be at your door. Parents are afraid of polio. They're unsure about the vaccine, but they're terrified of the Russian police. So every single kid shows up. The Russian government concludes the vaccine is safe after giving it to 10 million children and orders 77 million people to get all vaccinated with Albert Sabin's vaccine. The Russian protocol of not letting people have any choice actually works. The population is all vaccinated in a matter of just a few weeks and Russia is very soon polio free. Back in the United States, Basil O'Connor, who's made it his life goal to raise money for a cure, buries his daughter. She has died from complications from her polio. In 1960, Albert Sabin brings his vaccine to the United States and begins, and begins giving his vaccine on Sundays. They call it Sabin Sundays. Salk is not happy. In 1961, the Salk vaccine is taken off the market and deemed unsafe. It is replaced with the Sabin vaccine. Until the year 2000, when the CDC actually has returned to the Salk vaccine. So the one we get now is actually the old one, the Salk vaccine, and not the Sabin vaccine. I'm not really sure why they switched back. But today, we still are at risk of polio. While it's been wiped off the map in most of the world, it's still present in Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. 
The Islamic wars and fightings make it impossible for doctors to get into the area and offer treatment or vaccines. In fact, the reason that they know these places still have polio is that they test the waste that comes out of the area, and the waste has a polio infection in it. Today, with so many refugees from these areas coming into Europe and, and into Western world, it's very important that each one is tested with the polio germ. The chances of it coming to the West are low, but possible. So the debate is the same it's been since vaccines started. Parents want their children safe from diseases that can cripple them and kill them. But some have concerns about taking healthy children to a doctor and having their healthy child injected with something that ends up killing them or giving them brain damage. There is one doctor that is hypercritical of the vaccine industry. His name is Dr. Bob Sears. Every day, Dr. Sears meets his very young patients in his office. And every day in his office, vaccines are handed out. Dr. Sears has been giving his own children vaccines. And yet he's seen as the anti-vaccine doctor and the vaccine industry is trying to have his medical license revoked. Before we dive into the news from this week from California and Ontario, let's look for just a little bit at who Dr. Sears is and why he's both hated and loved. At Georgetown Medical School in the 1990s, Bob comes across some studies that show the DPT vaccine is causing harm to some children. Some are even dying. There are many studies, and yet every day across the nation, the vaccine is still being given to little babies. In 1986, companies who make the vaccine are being sued because children have ended up with severe brain damage from DPT. On March 23, 1990, the New York Times prints a story that says there's no problems with the DPT vaccine. Parents should keep giving it to their children. But then the DPT is taken off the market and suddenly replaced with the DTAP vaccine. They say, no, no, there was no problems with the DPT one. They just changed it for no reason at all. He says it was an unsafe vaccine and they finally pulled it from the market. Dr. Sears is an advocate for informed consent. Parents need to be informed of the risk and they need to consent. In California, where Dr. Sears practices, this is not a popular opinion. People want parents to be forced to vaccinate their children, and they don't want the risk talked about at all. In fact, anyone who mentions a risk is labeled as a conspiracy theorist who want kids dead. In 2014, a baby was vaccinated in Dr. Sears' office. The baby had a severe reaction to the vaccine, and Dr. Sears told the parents, in his opinion, the baby should not get any more vaccines. Five years later, the parents divorced, and the father wants his now five-year-old to be vaccinated. The mother is afraid of the risk. Dr. Sears wrote a letter to the court letting the court know the baby had a severe reaction to his vaccine. And he believed the five-year-old is at risk of having a vaccine injury if he gets another vaccine. The court agreed with Dr. Sears and the mother and the, children will not, and the child will not be forced to get a vaccine. The father is outraged and ended up turning Dr. Sears into the medical board who is now threatening to take his license away. So many families were suing the vaccine company that the vaccine companies actually threatened to stop the program entirely. The government then said the vaccine companies could not be sued, but they needed the companies to address the concerns and make sure the vaccines were safe. Instead, the vaccine started, instead of trying to make the vaccines safer, the vaccine companies just started pumping out way more vaccines now that they can't be sued. For every 1,000 MMR vaccines, 10 have a reaction. Most who have their reaction will fully recover. Only a few will have lifetime side effects and some have died. 
This leads me to where I started, the two new laws, SB 276 in California and H and HL 9.2 in Ontario. Let's start with SB 276 in California. They're going to require vaccines for children to be enrolled in any group activity, daycare, elementary school, middle school, high school. It'll be for all schools, public, private, religious, every school, every daycare. There will only be a very small exception. If a child had a vaccine and they had severe reaction and it ended up in a coma or an anaphylactic shock, they can be excused from just that one vaccine. If they had a severe reaction but didn't almost die, they can't be exempt. If they had a sibling that died from a vaccine, they can't be an exempt. And for the few who had severe reactions, almost died and had to be medically saved from dying, they have to see a doctor and that doctor has to write an exemption letter. Then the letter has to go to the school who then sends it to the Board of Health, who reviews it to make sure the exemption follows the guidelines. If the board feels the child should still get vaccinated, the child will be forced to get vaccinated and the doctor will be under review and penalized for writing a false letter. So last week we talked about California and the abortion debate. Go back and listen to that one called The Horror in the Lab. But the argument that no one should make decisions about your body except the patient and the doctor this argument seems to be out the window when it comes to vaccines. No more bodily autonomy. Here in Ontario, we seem to think that we have to do every crazy thing California does. So we have our own bill and it's coming up to be voted on Monday, September 23rd. We're going to actually right now read this bill together. First, in keeping with the recommendations of the Premier's Council on Improving Healthcare and Ending Hallway Medicine, 1. Ensure that the digital health immunization records is available to the local health care provider, patient, and or guardian in the local public unit. Alright, so there's going to be a digital record for those who have vaccines and those who don't. There's some possible privacy issues here, but I can see how this is helpful. I have definitely lost my kids' immunization records during one of our moves. And we ended up moving to another city. So yeah, it was kind of complicated for me to try to figure out what vaccines they'd had and had it. And I can see, I can see some concerns with this, but I can also see a lot of benefits. All right, number two. Set immunization coverage targets for the newly forming Ontario health teams and all primary care providers to promote accountability and monitoring of vaccine rates at local level. Okay, I don't really have a problem with that. Um, enable health Quality Ontario to create personalized reports for local healthcare providers on vaccine rates and their practices. Okay, don't really have a problem with that. Provide financial incentives to promote vaccines for local healthcare providers. Yeah, let me read that again. That's not cool. Provide financial incentives to promote vaccinations for local healthcare providers. Okay, that is a red flag. Huge problem. First of all, the vaccine companies are making a buttload of money since all the kids are being forced to get vaccines. And so now the doctors are also going to get money. So who is making sure the vaccines are safe? And if I go to a doctor and I ask if this vaccine is safe, and the doctor says, yeah, it's totally fine. But the doctor is getting extra money if I get the vaccine. I'm not going to trust that. That's kind of a huge problem. Don't forget, like if you look at Sabin and what happened in Russia, and he had like 77 million people getting the vaccine. And by the way, they had three doses of that. So he made a buttload of money off of Russia forcing that on people. And that is something that we need. I mean, they should be allowed to make money, obviously, but it's concerning. Okay, 
consider removing uh, physiological and religious exemptions under the Immunization of School Pupils Act and only accept medical exemptions completed by a certified healthcare provider. So, for me, this is a problem. Um, for me, the vaccines that I ended up using them because I didn't know this at the time, but if I would have known it at the time, I wouldn't have used it. Um, those are the vaccines that are created using fetal tissues from aborted babies. So the religious exemption is part of that. Uh, I, knowing that, I can't put something into my child that used a murdered child's body tissue as part of the process. It definitely goes against my conscience. So when people say, well, what religious exemptions are there? That's, for me, that's the religious exemption right there. I can't use the um, immunizations that use aborted baby tissue in the process of creating it. Okay. Consider developing a provincial vaccine injury compensation program to strengthen vaccine safety and support those few individuals who have serious side effects from the vaccine. So the vaccines are perfectly safe and no one ever gets hurt, right? Okay. Like all vaccines since the beginning of vaccines, it's kind of a little bit Russian roulette. Most likely safe, but you could die or have serious injuries. So they're admitting that here, which is nice that they're at least admitting it. Okay, next. Increase the functionality of Panorama, where the digital health immunization records are housed to allow reporting of vaccines directly into Panorama at the time the vaccine is administered. Um, analysis at the local level to determine areas of low vaccine vaccination coverage, including geographic and equity disparities and reminder notifications to be sent automatically when a vaccine is due for the child. All right, so this is kind of the same thing I said before. I could definitely see how this is helpful. It could also be a privacy issue. Um, yeah, I could, I could definitely see both things for this. Like I have issues with the government keeping records and having like my health records be open for everyone to see. That's definitely a privacy issue. Also, as a mom who's really busy, it's helpful if uh, I get reminders. So I, I, could, I could see both with that one. Okay. Request the College of Physician and Surgeons of Ontario to share with Toronto Public Health the email address of Toronto Physicians to allow Toronto Public Health staff to provide timely resources to physicians to address vaccine hesitancy. Okay, vaccine hesitancy. So they want to report and stop vaccine hesitancy. That, okay. Um, moms are allowed to be hesitant about a vaccine since they're also earlier talking about how they're going to have a compensation program in case your child gets sick or dies. You're allowed to be hesitant about it. They don't, you're not even allowed to be hesitant. You can't even be vaccine hesitant now. All right. Two, the Board of Health requests Health Canada to consider developing a national vaccine injury compensation program to strengthen vaccine safety and support those few individuals who may have a serious side effect from a vaccine. Okay, so they already said that. So this isn't there twice. It's double. So it sounds like there might be some people who have concerns about the serious side effects of the vaccines. All right, next one. The Board of Health requests the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario to develop a best practice guideline on, oh, here we are again, best practice guideline on vaccine 
hesitancy, and misinformation for nurses. All right, so here again, we're going to provide things for the nurses to say if people are vaccine hesitancy. So they're going to be trained on how to persuade the mom to give the vaccine, even if the mom has concerns. Sounds a little bit like uh, the 50s in our earlier story. I don't want my doctors and my nurses to have memorized scripts to talk to me about when I have concerns. This actually sounds extremely condescending to the mothers out there who just want to make sure their children are safe. Uh, Yeah, I find this condescending and I don't like that. Okay, the Board of Health requests all Toronto school boards and the Ministry of Education to adopt kids boost immunity or develop similar curriculum on vaccines and vaccine preventable diseases for all elementary schools. Okay, so they're going to teach this to kids in schools. Um, I'm fine with that if they tell them all of the history. So if they're going to teach them the good, the bad, and the ugly, I'm going to guess it's only going to be one side of the argument. And this is just off topic, sort of, but let's just in general, stop using our elementary schools as places where you can change society by indoctrinating people when they're too young to think critically about your argument across the board. Not just on this issue, but just in general. If you can't persuade adults, then maybe fix your argument. Don't just change your audience to children. Just in general, let's just stop doing that. Okay, next one. The Board of Health requests Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada to increase the transparency of the safety of vaccines by, okay, this looks promising. I like transparency. Let's see what they're going to do here. By providing a publicly available and searchable online database of reports from the Canadian adverse effects following immunization surveillance system and renewing the information provided in the product of vaccines to streamline the content and provide only, oh, provide only clinically relative safety data. I'm not sure what this means. So are they going to actually, sounds like they're going to have a database, be able to see children who've been injured or killed and made public. That's good, except it sounds like they're only clinically relevant safety data. Maybe they're trying to say they're they're not going to give. Okay, I think think what they're saying here, we're going to have a database so we can see the numbers, but not like personal information. So that's good. If they do that, I would agree with that. Okay. The Board of Health requests Ad Standards Canada to revise their Canadian Code of Advertising Standards to discourage advertisements that contain false or misleading statements about vaccine. Okay. So this sounds like it's going to be illegal to give false or misleading statements against vaccines. False or misleading. So I'm guessing that means sharing information that says the other side of the argument that's actually going to be legal now. So like if I share a post on Facebook, is that going to be a crime now? The Board of Health requests, oh, here we go. The Board of Health requests major search engines and social media organizations, including Facebook, Google, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram to adopt the priorities for action from the statement on vaccine acceptance. So, okay. Namely to... Develop principles that distinguish levels of evidence in the vaccine information they provide so they can improve identification of disproven or inaccurate false claims about vaccine safety for the users that have led to the return of childhood diseases just, oh, just as they do for sexually explicit, violent, or threatening messages. Wow. That is kind of important. 
So they want to put my post about why we should be allowed to ask questions about vaccine and have informed consent. That's going to be seen as as dangerous as sexually explicit, violent, or threatening messages. Really, same thing. Okay? Sexually explicit posts and me saying, hey, how about we have informed consent? Same thing. All right. Include information from robust scientific sources, particularly as unscientific misinformation puts vulnerable babies, cancer patients of all ages, and immune-compromised individuals at unnecessary and avoidable risk of serious, complicated, long-term disability and the potential of death. This is always the argument. Uh, If you have any questions about vaccines, you just want to kill all the kids with cancer. Okay, the Board of Health forwards the report. Okay, and then it just ends with a bunch of all the um, people who wrote this. Okay, so that's the bill being voted on this Monday. And I do have, obviously, some concerns. Look, here's the debate. It's the same one since we started this episode. One, should healthy children be injected with something that has the potential to hurt or even kill them if the thing being injected will stop them from getting a disease? That's the debate. Um, should the government be allowed to force people to get the vaccine? Many states forced it when they were getting rid of smallpox. England forced it for a while. Russia forced it when they were getting rid of polio. In these cases, it did work. But do we want to live in a country where the government can forcibly inject you with something against your will? That's the debate. Look, here's the other side of the argument. There are people who can't get vaccines. Maybe they're really old or people with cancer or children who have immune diseases. These people do depend on the herd being vaccinated to keep outbreaks away. When there are outbreaks, it's most people will get the disease, they'll get sick and they'll recover and they'll be fine. But it's the vulnerable that end up dying. And it's the vulnerable that need the rest of us to be disease free so the outbreaks don't happen in the first place. I can imagine if you're a parent of a medically vulnerable child, this is stressful. I have friends who have children who have cancer now. I have some friends who children had cancer and are now cancer-free. My father has health problems, and if he was to catch measles or something like that, it would be really bad. So I get it. And I think actually do think that is a legitimate argument that we need to look at. But on that argument, here's another little note that's kind of important for you to know. For the first time, In Canadian history and the first time in American history, first time in all of our history, we have an adult population that is not immune to measles. Um, We have a generation that never got the measles because they were vaccinated. That vaccination is not lifelong. It's only about maybe 10 years after high school, it starts to wear off. So by the time you're in your late 30s or 40s, you're not immune to measles. So if a measles outbreaks did come to Ontario, it would be really bad right now because our entire adult population is at risk. Um, So that would be me as well. So I didn't get measles because I had the vaccine. So if we had an outbreak, I would be in trouble. Although I did get the measles vaccine again when I was in my late 20s. It was less than 10 years after graduating high school. And when I got tested, I didn't have immunity to the um, measles anymore. That was less than 10 years. I think it was about nine years after I graduated high school and I was tested and the immunity was gone. So I did get uh, uh, re-vaccinated, but that was, would be like 14 years ago right now. So I probably am not immune to it anymore. So most people, they haven't gone out and gotten tested and they probably don't have immunity to it anymore. 
So does that mean that we need to get all the adults vaccinated? Or is the government going to force all the adults to go out and get vaccinated? Or does it mean there might be a bad thing to vaccinated kids and not letting them get natural immunity? And it is a debate that we should be allowed to have. All right, my fourth thing is this, show me the money. So remember Sabin in our story, when Russia um, vaccinated 77 million people, it was a huge payday for him. Each of those who got vaccinated got three vaccines. So that's 231 million vaccines. It was a really nice payday for him. Now remember, Sabin was the one who wanted informed consent. And suddenly, when he had 231 million vaccines being forced on the Russian people by the government, that informed consent went out the window for him. Today, there's so many vaccines. Over 60 are given to kids in just the first few years of their life and more later. And if they're all mandatory, that's a huge payday for the vaccine companies. And if they can't be sued, if the vaccines cause injuries, there's really no reason for them to make sure they're safe. And if the doctors are now getting money, if they get more people vaccinated, it's just money, money, money. I don't know a lot, but I do know greed gets in the way of doing what is right. All right. So where am I on this debate in case you're wondering? Look, I vaccinated my kids. I found out later about the aborted fetal tissue. I would have skipped those vaccines if I had known. I see the risk and I did look at the risk before I vaccinated my kids. But I personally, in my opinion, I think the risk is worth it. I didn't do the PPV vaccine for the grade eight girls. There's way too many stories of perfectly healthy kids who played sports and were active who suddenly can't walk. Plus, it's only a vaccine against one strain of one kind of cancer that you don't get if you don't sleep around. So when I looked at the risks of that one, it was really not worth it to me. I also believe that there are actually real risks and children really have died or had bad reactions. This is real and these families are not treated well. They're made out to be the villains. And I don't like how we treat the families of children who um, who had reactions to the vaccines. It really, really bothers me how those people are treated, even the church, I and mean, even how Christians treat them and talk down to them as if they've done something wrong by their children being hurt by the vaccine. I'm a huge believer in freedom, huge believer in freedom. And I do not think it's okay for the government to force you to inject something into your body. We have to have control of our own bodies. And when a child is too young to decide for themselves, it should be up to their parent who decides for them. So at the very least, we need to be able to have time to think about this. So what is my, so if I was going to sum it up, what is my belief on the vaccine debate? Here is my belief. I am pro-informed consent. And I really feel like that should be where everyone is. Okay, that's it for today. I want to remind all of you about my other podcast, Gifts from God, where we talk about the stories of adopted families and church history. It's all about church history. And in our last one, we talked about how we got harmony in our church music, how the English received the gospel, and why we say God bless you after someone sneezes. It all came from one guy. So go and check that out. In my show notes, I will have the bill that was being voted on a Monday, and I'll have a link to my other podcasts. So for more podcasts, blogs, and videos, check out lauraleesiemens.com. See you next week.